But as we go through 1 Peter, again, we need to be reminded that our hope is not found in how we deal with COVID or how we deal with circumstances. Hope was not found uh, or hope was not lost when you had to go through World War I and World War II. Jesus was still at work. There were moments that take place that we need to realize that our hope is not in, and, and we want to be smart. We want to be wise how to figure things out, but our hope is not in the circumstances on this earth. Our hope is a living hope, not an idea, but a living hope found in our creator. His name is Jesus. And he calls us to engage with him in relationship. And as we do that, he becomes the hope of the world. Now, if you've got your Bibles, I want you to go to 1 Peter chapter 4. And again, as we've been talking about this is our living hope, the living hope series, Jesus is our living hope. I want you to go with me to chapter four, verse seven, and let's read from God's word. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, think about this. As Peter is writing to the church, he is telling them, uh, he has told them all these different things about how they're called to relate to one another, how they're to relate to the family, what foundation that their belief is supposed to have. He's gone through this whole thing and he comes to chapter four and he begins to tell us this. He says, the end of all things is at hand. Now, as soon as that phrase comes out, it's interesting because whenever we think about end times, it's almost something of one of two things. It's either of the point of, okay, he's coming back, we're all freaking out, and we're gonna start saying that this person is the Antichrist, and that person there is the Antichrist, and over there, there's this war, and that's showing that it's this, and all of a sudden, don't get the barcode. Nobody thinks that's funny. But I have a point for that later on. There's so much trying to predict the future that we're not living with being sensitive to what God's calling us to be in the present about. Or the other side of it, it's been talked about from the very beginning of the apostles that Jesus is coming back. And it's been how long? 2,000 years. And so now the question is, well, I mean, he's not really coming back. Or if he is, I mean, there's more important things that we need to focus on right now because this, this stuff's been talked about forever. We get two extremes. But the Bible tells us, and I'll say this, I'll say this. I do believe at points and times there has been 
preaching that has been done that ends up focusing so much that it almost tries to scare people into trying to relate to God. And I'm gonna share with you, with you right now, why do we need to keep the end of all things at hand? Okay? There is going to be a judgment time that Jesus comes back. And in that time, there is going to be a judgment and those that do not have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, those that do not put faith in him for not only salvation, but to live in loving relationship with him, there is an eternal damnation forever. There is a reality to that that the Bible tells us about, and it is very true. But that's not the only thing that's called to be keeping in mind. We recognize that Jesus Christ died to pay the debt for our sins that we have committed against a holy God and sins and atrocities that we've committed against each other. And there has to be a payment for those things that have happened. Why do I know that? How many of y'all have been wronged by somebody? And how many of you all would be perfectly fine if they got away with it? None of us. None of us believe that. Now, how many of y'all have wronged somebody else? And do you think that they want justice against you? The reality is, is that there is a justice that will be met out. For the non-believer that does not know Christ, that does not put their faith in loving relationship with what God has given as a gift, there's eternal damnation. But for the Christian, we have to remember this. Everything that everybody has ever said and done, whether they are lost or whether they are saved, they will have to give an account for every word and every action that they have committed against somebody. Even for the Christian. The Christian, although Christ is paid for our sins, the Christian will be held in the point of rewards at the end. And everything that is done, that's the reason why it talks about in the Bible, it says some will do escape as if through the fire. They put faith in Jesus, but they didn't really put faith in anything else in what they did. And somehow they'll make it as escaping as if through the fire. I'm gonna tell you right now, I don't wanna meet Jesus and that's the only way I made it there. I wanna be able that Jesus looked at me and said, Sean, I watched how you ended up loving that person and you trusted me, and by faith, I'm gonna reward you. That person that ended up wronging you, you chose to love and forgive them instead of holding a grudge and to pray for them. Sean, you trusted me, and by faith, I'm gonna give you a reward. Sean, you chose uh, in this moment to stand up for me, and so I'm gonna give you a reward. Now, it's also gonna be times where God will look at me and say, Sean, you said all the right things in that situation, but your heart was far from me. There is no reward because there's no faith in that. Sean, you preached a sermon, but I know for a fact that you just did it because it was expected of you on that Sunday. There's no reward for that. There was no faith. See, we are going to be held accountable for everything that we've done. And the rewards that I get, just to make sure you know, 
We have a little bit of insight into this in Revelation and some other places, but those crown, this is what I believe the Bible teaches. In that moment when I'm in heaven and God gives me all those rewards, hopefully God gives me those rewards by faith in Christ, by being obedient to him. But all those rewards that I get, those crowns, I'm gonna lay those all at his feet and say, this was all about you. This was all about you. See, I wanna be able to give my Lord something when I get to heaven, not just me. I wanna be able to give him something in that moment that says, this was about what you did in my life. And thus, this is yours. When we keep the end in mind, it begins to have an effect on how we live and what we do. One last point. Because I think at times there has been such guilt or shame that has been focused on end times. I think that some people don't know how to relate to God. They get a one-sided us. They don't catch his grace, his love, what he desires. They only think I'm not good enough or he's out to get me. Relating to God as in the only thing he's doing is damnation and hellfire or he's gonna, he's out to get me. It's kind of like being in a marriage relationship where people, the only reason why they get married is for the physical relationship. Now, the physical relationship in a marriage is important. The Bible goes through it. It brings it out. It's an important relationship. It's an important part of the relationship. But if that's the only thing you focus on in that relationship, how well is that marriage going to do? It's not. It's going to have a problem. It's going to have, it's going to at some point in time break down and have issues. I'm going to share with you right now. If the only way we relate to God is he's out to get me, we miss the whole aspect of that he desires, that he died for us, he loves us, cares for us. There is a greater part of the relationship. And thus, by putting it in the end of all things is at hand, it begins to focus why we exist on this earth. And it begins to change why we do what we do if we're focused. Listen to what it says here. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Be self-controlled and sober-minded. <clears throat> the idea here is that when we focus this way, we should live in mind with the glory of God that we should do this to be self-controlled and sober-minded in order to pray effectively. Now, what does the Bible mean by this, by keeping the end times and keeping focused? The idea of being self-controlled is, is that once we get our passions riled up, we're not self-controlled, we tend at this point in time to not be able to focus on what God's doing in the here and now. True? Think about this. How well do you pray when you are scared of a situation? How effective are your prayers? How well, how, how effective do you think your prayers are when you choose to not forgive somebody and you have a grudge? How, how, how do you feel like that goes? I'm going back to the Psalms. The only thing I'm sitting there going, God, get them. 
Get them. They've wrong. God, get them. And David prayed that way. We understand that. We understand that there's a, a visceral reaction. But at some point in time, we also know that we start, when we get so caught up in the world around us, things that we think that are righteous ends up becoming poison to us. And we become so consumed that it's no longer, the reason why the Bible says, don't, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Anger in the right moment can be a righteous anger, can it not? But if that anger stays burning past that, what happens? Even for righteous causes, even for justice, even for things, justice, if it stays in a moment where you're not focused, it becomes revenge. Moments when we become passionate about things, we no longer see what God is doing and all we see is what we think God should be doing or what we want God to do. We become, in an idea, drunk on what we think, sober-minded. Sober-minded here doesn't mean of, of taking something physically. It means that when my passions are ignited and I am not in self-control of what's going on, the very things I become where I can no longer even hear what God's wanting to do. And I thought about this. I thought about this last night and I was talking to Dana about it. You know, a lot of times when we think about somebody getting drunk, really getting drunk, getting inebriated, taking something and getting drunk, what we start to think about in this moment is, well, the reason that's so bad is because of the consequences. You know, because there, there are things that just happen. There are horrible things that just take place of deaths or, or, or we won't get into all the atrocities, but that's, we think of the effects. Here's what we forget about in this moment. People that are drunk are not in control and can't relate to God in the proper way. They've lost control of all faculties and everything else and they cannot relate to God properly. The same thing can be said when we are so enraged about what's going on in this world or so whatever and we don't put it in proper perspective, we've become drunk on the world and we can no longer relate to God the way that he desires us. And our prayers, we can say prayers all day long. We can pray, use God's name and everything else. The reality is this, God tells us in this passage and in other passages, there are some times in the Bible where God says, I will not hear your prayers. Why? Because you harbor sin. You refuse to repent, you refuse to come to me, and you think that this outward dialogue is what I want when what I desire is your heart bent towards me in trust, faith, and obedience. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers Pray effectively. When we keep the end in mind, Jesus is coming back. He already has the victory. He desires for me to trust him. He is going to look at how I dealt with this situation, these people, this moment. He is going to look at all those things. And Lord, what I want to be done is not if somebody wronged me, but how did I relate to you in trust and obedience? How did I relate to you? It goes on as it tells us this. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly 
since, since love covers a multitude of sins. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. The idea of earnestly is this. It's like if you are going to, anybody in here competitive? Anybody in here competitive? I just want you to know, um, I've gotten better over 20 years of marriage. But I hate to lose to my wife. I mean, I hate it. I hate it. Hate it. I don't know why it is. I, she has always celebrated me when I have won. I have learned to celebrate when her went. But we end up playing games that technically she hates playing games, hates playing games. But she's like, but I want to spend time with you. Well, yeah, I just want to win. You know, that's the most important thing here. And so we played Risk early in our marriage. Anybody ever played Risk? You know what that game is? Anyway, that's a game like Monopoly and it takes like 40,000 hours to play. We played it and she beat me in 30 minutes, 30 minutes flat. I was so frustrated. We played another game. We played a game. We played, what was it? Is it phase 10? We played phase 10, a card game, phase 10, because you're at home and you've already done everything else. So let's break out phase 10 and play phase 10. We played phase 10. My wife does not like this game, but she was like, well, let's just hang out together. Let's have fun. Let's play. Sure, let's have fun. She doesn't want to play. She's got nothing in this. There's no way I'm going to lose this. She drills me in 30 minutes. Phase 10 takes forever to play. Now, here's why I say this. When we compete, our attitude should not, our attitude we can control but our competitiveness, we should be in a moment when we're playing to be competitive without being ugly, right? That's where we should look at it. When we are running a race and if we are going to win a prize, we are called to run that. The Bible tells when we talk about that race that Paul talks about, we are called to run that race not like, but with effort, with effort, intensity, driving. When we are called to love each other earnestly, we have to put effort and chase that down fiercely. Why do you think that the Bible tells us that we should love one another earnestly? They will know us by our love, that's true. That's how Jesus loves, with a fierce love. I'll also throw this at you. We tend to rub each other the wrong way. Right? No way, right? We tend to frustrate, hurt, do things that cause each other problems. Now again, Peter here, is talking to the church. Why are we called to love each other earnestly? Because it takes effort to love and forgive one another. It is not easy and it is not natural. Right? And if I don't put effort into it, you know what I will do? I will write you off. And watch this, and I'll justify it. I will say they were wrong. How dare they do that? There's no way they can do it. That, no, I am justified. I have done everything. I've done it the way it's supposed to be. And thus, 
I don't have to love them anymore because I've done what I'm supposed to do. But if we go back to Jesus and we go back to even, Jesus talks about praying for your enemies. Jesus on the cross loved his enemies. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Jesus sent the apostles on a mission. And in Acts, as we've read through that, if you've read through the reading plan, but the apostles go back and still share the gospel with the Pharisees. And some of those Pharisees come to the Lord Jesus Christ in salvation. Probably some of the same ones, although it doesn't say, but probably some of the same ones that had Jesus crucified. Now, some of them, even later, end up being what they call Judaizers. It's Jesus plus these works. But what we forget is this. The gospel message comes from a living God who is love and that does not love us based on our merit and what we have done. He loves us just because he loves us. And I don't get that. In the church, from the very beginning of Acts all the way through until now, we will find ourselves at opposing points, being hurt by each other, differing ideologies, differing things that go on. And if we don't watch it, we will become drunk on our justice and we no longer pray for them. We no longer earnestly chase after them to love them. We just stand justified. We're no longer sober-minded and self-controlled. Earnestly, we are called to chase this down earnestly above all keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins if we can love deeply and earnestly with an effort now then we want when we run into little things it'll be easier to forgive and show grace but if not if not we will have a tendency to become self not self-controlled, not sober-minded. Our prayers become not as effective because we're too worried about what we have felt instead of what the Bible has said. Instead of what the Bible has said. Again, he tells us, above all, love one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Verse nine, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Now, this is an interesting thing. I'm talking about love. Hospitality was important in the first century, second century church uh, because as you had itinerant travelers or you had Christians coming back and forth in places, the only place that they're gonna be able to say sometimes is gonna be at the inn. And you know what? Sometimes... That place can be a little seedy. Glad things have changed, right? But there can be things in that moment. And so the ability for them to show hospitality to, uh, to a, a itinerant preacher or to a group of believers that were all of a sudden traveling and coming in, this show of hospitality, even when they didn't officially maybe all know each other, but they had Jesus as Lord. And that's what's kind of beautiful, 
It's hard to trust people. It's hard to take people at their word nowadays. It's hard when people say, oh, yes, I'm a Christian. And then all of a sudden, we know that there's been taken advantage of in things. But the beautiful thing about it, when it's done right, is that all of a sudden we recognize that we're brothers and sisters in Christ. There's family. It's really strange. It's really strange. To be able to walk up to different people. You know, Zach said something about it. Zach, I'm going to just put you on the spot. But it's interesting that Zach said something in the middle of staff meeting, or maybe it was just in the middle of the hallway. But we were all talking, and Zach was like going, there is no reason when you start thinking about some of us why we would all hang out together. If you think about who Zach is, Zach is an extremely gifted and talented musician. The way he thinks about things is just, he, he just thinks about things in a very uh, intricate way, uh, thinks deeply about things. Uh, just all, there is no reason at all why Zach should even think about hanging out with me at all. I think about things, but just, it's just different. But in that moment, although we don't know each other, we've known each other for about three and a half years, but at the same point in time, that's one of those moments if Zach all of a sudden was like going, oh man, I'm going through a hard time. Zach, what do we need to do for you? What do you need? I don't want to put words in Zach's mouth, but I have a feeling he would do that for me also. But I won't put you on the spot, it's okay. But think about this. Some of us, even in this room, haven't known each other that long. Some of us have known each other for a long time. Some of us haven't even known that long. And would you not all of a sudden say, I know you're in need. What can I do for you? Why? It's not because our commonality of it. It's because of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Everything else added on is icing, but it's because of Jesus Christ. Is it not? That's the beauty of when we see this, of why he says this hospitality, show hospitality to one another. But notice what he says, without what? Grumbling. You know the reason why Peter says this? Because each one of us can go through the outward motion and then the inside resent it the entire time. Right? We can look at somebody and say, God's told me to serve them, but I don't really want to. There's that person over there, and I don't, I'll pray for you. I guarantee you, if we don't watch it, and I'm not talking about today, how many of y'all have ever showed up to church, and the only reason you came is either because you knew you were supposed to, or you didn't want to feel guilty through the week, or it made your it always makes my week better. But you didn't come for the sheer of, I'm here to worship God, and that alone is why I'm here. Anybody had that? Anybody come for that reason? Nobody's gonna raise their hand, right? Church, earnestly to love one another takes effort and energy and a race that we are prepared to win, and it doesn't happen by jogging. Jesus Christ didn't 
he gave everything in order for us to understand what it means to be loved and forgiven for us in our failed ways and ways that we even fail one another, but we are called to love each other with great earnest effort because that's how Christ has loved us. And when we show hospitality, when we love one another, when we give to one another, it is not out of, we're supposed to do this, it's out of God, change my heart because you have loved me greatly and teach me to love that person the way that you have loved me. Teach me to love this brother, this sister in the way that you have loved me. And God, even when I don't want to deal with them and be around them, because none of us have ever felt that way, correct? That all of a sudden we're able to say this, not my will, but yours. And I will chase after loving the way that you have loved me. We don't do it out of habit. We do it out of the heart. It goes on. So we talk about it. When we keep the end in mind, it makes us to think about where we're praying effectively. When we keep the end in mind of Jesus coming back, it calls us to love earnestly because that's how he has loved us. And then we look at verse 10 and it says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Three, we keep the end in mind of Jesus coming back. It now causes us to serve unselfishly. The gifts that God has given us, the spiritual gifts that God gives us, when we step into relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, he gives us gifts. They are not meant to put us on display or to lift us up. They are meant to be given to build up the body. This is what happens in 1 Corinthians when they had gifts and all the gifts, instead of being used to build up the body, they were used to put down people. In 2 Corinthians, the letter, they seem to get it more figured out. But in the beginning, all the gifts ended up being about me instead of about the body. Scott was sharing this. He said, it's interesting right now. He goes, there are sometimes you look around and there's some things that we've looked at, like different physical gifts that people have had that we've been like going, we didn't even think anything about it. But once this has hit, all of a sudden you're like going, that person has an amazing gift. Sewing right now is an amazing gift. Sewing is an amazing gift. My wife, she's done this. Her mom was an artist when it came to uh, doing sewing and everything and everything else. But here's the thing. The thing I'm amazed about right now, and I've seen it within our church, like the masks that you see out there that were made today, the different masks, that was made by a member of our church that just said, I just wanna be able to do this to just show the love of Christ to people. There's a lady that I know that I've grown up with right now, and she is, I don't know. I probably don't need to say how old Norma is. Anyway, she's older. She's an older lady, widowed. In the midst of all this right now, she has found a way to take that gift. And she has been making different things for people. 
And whether any of us agree with whether it should be or shouldn't be, here's the thing. There are people right now that all of a sudden are going, you did this for me and you're not taking any money for it? Why are you doing that? See, the gift, the spiritual gift is not sowing. The spiritual gift is giving. The Bible tells us, the Bible tells us that one of the gifts that has is a person that's able to give. Just as one is able to preach, one is able to teach. We look at these different gifts and the gifts that we have when we use them, we build up the body of Christ. And I will say right now, the enemy loves to lie to us and say that your gift is not important. If you're in Jesus Christ, you absolutely, if you have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, you absolutely have a spiritual gift. You may not know what it is, but you have one. And the enemy will lie to you and says, well, your gift is not as good as someone else's. Or you'll even say this, somebody else does that so much better than I do. If I keep the end in mind and I realize that my Lord is not looking at anybody else, but he's looking at me to say, come, I love you, trust me. I'm gonna do something with you that you can't even believe that I am gonna be lifted up, but just by what trust me, love me, follow me. When we give that gift, think about the parable of the talents. Did everybody get the same amount of the talents, meaning the not talents as in like I've talent this, but as in like the money or whatever, the wealth. But did everybody get the same amount of talents? One had five, one had two, one had one. The one that had five, he used it for the master. And the master looked at him and said, well done. What about the one that had two? What did he do? He used it. And when he used it, the master looked at him and said, well done. The one that had one, what did he do? He buried it. And then he said this, I buried it because I knew that you were a hard man, that you, you reap where you don't sow. And, and so notice that he only had one aspect of his master. He didn't have the whole thing. Was his master, could his master be hard? You better believe it. But he also missed the fact that his master was full of grace, full of love and cared. He only got one side of the master and that's the only side he focused on and thus he buried it. Church, what would happen if you all of a sudden quit comparing your gift to other people and you did it with the end in mind of I'm doing this for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And even if nobody appreciates it in this moment, I'm gonna believe you're gonna use it to build your kingdom. You're gonna use it to glorify yourself and that it is gonna make a difference in somebody's life because you gave it to me and why would you give me something that has no purpose? Can I say something? What? Go ahead. Okay. Um, we all have gifts, and the gifts are going to get bigger, and there's going to be a tendency when we start seeing each other's gifts, and that's going to happen in this church, in this church body, that this is, this is happening. We are going to grow. The power is going to grow. The anointing is going to grow, and we're going to see gifts come out in other people, and we are going to be tempted to be jealous. So I'm speaking to everybody here that if we start feeling a 
And, and I will say this, because I, and, and I, I agree with this point. We have a tendency that we will get jealous. We have a tendency in this moment to look at somebody when they use their gift, and we even say this. We think that the gifts are for me. The gifts are for the body. The gifts are not for me. If somebody goes and sows and they give that gift and they give it to somebody else, I may say, that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter about me. What did, they do? what did that do for that person, what God did in that person's life? There are things that have been done to me that everybody else would have thought wouldn't have mattered, but because that one person invested in my life, it changed me. It changed me. Don't compare your gifts to others and don't be unfaithful by not using what the Holy Spirit has given and living inside of you. Don't be selfish and say, it doesn't matter. And don't be so scared of saying, I've already been put down, I've already been insulted, I've already had this, I am not gonna put myself out there again. You're not doing it for other people, you're doing it for the Lord Jesus Christ. If that were true, if that were true, I would have quit preaching a long time ago. Because I've had enough people that have told me they don't appreciate it. I've had enough people that have told me that it's not as good as somebody else. I've had enough people that have told me uh, that I'm not conformed to whatever's going on. And this is not a pity party. I'm not looking for your sympathy. What I'm telling you is this. I have come to realize this. I'm not called to reach everybody. I'm called to give to the glory of God and those people that God uses for his... It was for his glory and for what God needed to do with those people, not for everybody. And the same thing goes for you. You, if you, if you are in Jesus Christ, you are called to use that gift to build up the body. And then the last thing of where we come through, it says this. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Listen again. In order that in everything God may be glorified. Church, the whole reason why we do this is that God would be lifted up. That's it. That God would be lifted up in everything that we do. We have this moment There are brothers and sisters in Christ that are persecuted in other countries right now being killed for the faith. And a lot of people would say, just quit meeting or lie about it. Just tell people that you're not a Christian, but secretly, inwardly, you can be a Christian, but don't, don't lose your life. But the Bible tells us, if you're ashamed of me, I will be ashamed of you. Rather to lose my life for that of Christ than to save my life and lose it for all of eternity. Do you pray in such a way that God is glorified? 
I'll ask even a more tough question. Do you pray? Do you pray? If not, God's not receiving glory. It's an expectation that we pray and that we pray self-controlled and sober-minded so that God receives all the glory. Do you love earnestly? Do you love brothers and sisters in Christ earnestly? Uh, We're called to love the sinner and the lost out there. Do you love people earnestly? Why? Because when you do that with great effort, God's gonna get glory because that's not natural. Do you use your gifts? Do you use your gifts? If you don't, God's not getting glory. If you're not using your gift, God's not getting glory. Everything that we do, everything, I do it, I'm supposed to do it, that God, when the world looks and they look at Sean Caudell, and that scares me to death because I know how many ways that I fail and I know ways that you all know my weaknesses and you all know ways that I've blown it, but I am called to live in such a way that when people look, they're able to say, I see Jesus in the midst of that. When they look at your life, when people look at your life, don't point out somebody else's faults. Good grief, what your own life. When somebody looks at you right now, what do they say about Jesus? What do they say? Not about Valley Creek, not about the pastors. Not about Christendom, not about America. What did they say about you? And does God receive the glory? And if there are areas where he's not receiving the glory, will you come to the God who loves you, that died for you, that cares greatly for you and repent? Will you come to him and begin to say, God, no longer my way, but your way. May you receive glory. God, forgive me. Because these three areas that Paul gives are not the only areas. They just give us an idea of where we're called to be. This is where we wrap up this morning. And so let me share with you how we're gonna kind of close out today. We have a song, right, Zach? If God's dealing with you today, if God's dealing with your heart, if there's a conviction and you're like, I need to talk with somebody, I need to talk with a pastor, I need to talk with somebody, I'm gonna encourage you. Please be patient. We're not coming to the altar today, but you're dealing with God where you're at. If you need to talk to me or one of the other pastors, you can email, you can phone call. We'll deal with you today, today. If you wanna wait in the parking lot, I'll talk with you out in the parking lot. We will deal with this today. But ultimately, what you need is not me. You need God to come to him of what's going on. We're gonna sing. 
We need to be in prayer about what God's wanting to do with us and as a church. And we're heading out into the world after the song. And I pray that as we as a church are trying to figure out how to navigate in this world right now, right or wrong, that our goal is to give God glory. To figure out how we do that in the midst of all this. Listen to 2 Peter. And this is where the band can start to come up. This is 2 Peter. 2 Peter. We were in first, but now Peter writes a second letter. And listen to what he writes here in chapter 3. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Now listen. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water through the water by the word of God. And that by means of these, these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now existed are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish but that all should reach repentance. But the day of Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found be with, by him without spot or blemish and at peace. We need to chase after God because he's coming back quicker than we realize. And if you don't have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ today, maybe you were told it wrong, maybe you ran into a person that was a jerk. I'm not, I'm telling you, have you wrestled with Jesus who loves you and the God that cares for your soul that died for you? That's why we do everything that we do. And if we don't, we've gotten clouded on why we do what we do. We repent and come back to it. It's all for the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen.